Uh, Allie, that was... Um, just sitting over there, just listening to the beauty of that song. Good night. Thank you. Thank you so much. Well, Tri-Village, it is good to be with you. My name is Pastor Josh. I'm one of the teaching pastors here at WBC, TVC. Uh, they would let me preach at IDP, but the problem is um, I don't speak Spanish. But Hannibal, he has told me that you get to preach longer at IDP, so that is a little bit of a, <laughs> uh, you know, uh, uh, well, the, the <laughs> anyways, so you can just pray for me there. I can't even speak English, but more or less Spanish, that will be very difficult. Well, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn with me to Genesis chapter 3, Genesis chapter 3. Uh, you, you know, this is Mother's Day, and I definitely want to extend a happy Mother's Day to all of you moms out there. And so I brought some images with me that I kind of just want to share on the screen to kind of walk through the stages of uh, motherhood. Uh, the, the first stage of motherhood is uh, labor. Now, um, it, it looks painful, never been through, never been in labor, so I, I don't know. Uh, now, Joni, she's actually never been in this kind of labor, she's had, she's had three C-sections, and I have been in there with her all three times, and I didn't even want to look. Uh, I mean, just, just the pain uh, that, uh, that it just looked like in terms of the needles and everything hooked up. So the last child we had, uh, Luke, here's what I did. I, t- I, took my, I took my iPhone in there, and I did this number just, just to record uh, the birth. And so, but, but there's pain, right? But then after labor comes, comes this, oh, where the, where the mom and the child get to bond. So pain, joy. But, but then the child kind of grows, and then you get this in the grocery store. I, I don't know if you've ever been in the grocery store when your two-year-old has this meltdown, uh, but, but we've had, I mean, we've had three kids, Caleb, Ellie, and Luke, and every single one of them has thrown their little two-year-old temper tantrum. And so you as a parent, you're like, especially moms, like, you are superheroes. Like me, I'm swooping the child up, and I'm getting out of Dodge, okay? Because I'm embarrassed, but no, not my, you know, Joni, she's, she just ignores the child, you know, and she continues on her shopping. Well, but then you, you have, you have these moments where your child gives you a, I love mom card and your heart wants to melt, right? So pain of the temper tantrums and then the love and the joy of the card. Well, then it goes on. Uh, you, you have, uh, you have your teenager. Don't touch me is kind of what they will say, right? Like they, they, they don't want you to hug them. They don't want you to kiss them. I mean, and so they're just like, really mom? Ugh, gross. But then they want you to play ball with them. And you're like, oh, this is, this is, you know, it's always funny when Joni is out playing uh, sports with our kids. I mean, she's a little bit athletic, a little bit. Uh, so, but, but there's times where, especially when she's throwing the baseball, I'm like, babe, you're throwing like a girl. And she's like, I am a girl. And so, but, but it's just those moments that moms have with their kids. But then as they grow, they, they become very hormonal. Like, really, mom, you're killing me. And, you, and then as moms, you want to pull your hair out because your kids, I mean, they're driving you crazy, right? Can I get an amen for many moms? 
Amen. Yeah, but but then 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 you're like, oh, it's like it's like one minute they're possessed by a demon, and then the next minute some something has happened where the demon has been cast out, and you're sitting on the couch, you you enjoying coffee, hanging out, hanging out with your teenager, and you're loving that moment, right? And then they grow older, and then they they go off to college. Now my mom is here with me today. Funny story when uh, I went to college. I remember my mom and dad driving me up an hour and a half to drop me off at Union University. Uh, We unload the car into the dorm, and then my mom and dad, they're going to leave, and my mom starts crying. She's like, I'm like, Mom, what are you crying for? I'm coming home today. (laughs) So she's like, it's just the thought of my baby growing up, you know, and so I'm like, all right, I get it. It's a very emotional moment for you. But then this happens, and this is my mom with at least two of the grandchildren. You become a grandma. And so there's the blessing of being now a grandma because you didn't kill your kid as they were growing up. So you're like, Josh, why why aren't you showing us these images? Because I want to to share this tension with you. Because in motherhood, there is pain... And there's joy. See, there's the gamut. And see, I know, I know, even for those of you who are connecting with us online, if you are a mom, or even if you're longing to be a mom, there is both pain and there is promise that we deal with. And you say, Josh, why are you even sitting in a chair today? Well, because I needed to be confined this morning. But in all seriousness, I just want to pastor you this morning. I just want to talk to you. Uh, I was reading through social media this past week, and there was this uh, young pastor. He had never, I don't think he had ever done a Mother's Day, and so he was just asking for feedback. What, what should he preach on? And it was amazing because this guy's not even followed by, that, by this many people, but there were hundreds of comments. And women were posting, don't, don't talk about moms. Don't do a Mother's Day sermon. It's just too painful. And I'm talking about like I'm t- dozens of comments. And so I'm thinking, oh my gosh, we'll do. And which, I mean, I've pastored before. I've preached many a sermons on Mother's Day targeting moms. And so as I'm reading through this, I'm like, Lord, should, should I even pivot? Should I do something else? And I really sense the Spirit of God say, no, continue with what I'm putting in your heart. And then Allie sent me the video that, that we just played moments ago. And I'm like, that, that's perfect because that's, that's where I was going. And so what I want to do is I want to lean into the discomfort. Because as, as pastors and as the church, I think we need to lean into the discomforts. I, I think we need to lean into the pain. I know it's painful. But if we don't talk about what's painful about motherhood, who's going to talk about it? Oprah? Yeah, she probably will, but will she do it in a way that frames it into the grand redemptive narrative of God? And that's what I want to do this morning. You see, our culture, we have lost what we call meta-narratives. Everybody say meta-narrative. Meta-narrative. That's the overarching stories that help make sense of life. You see, we live in a culture that is postmodern. They have lost the meta-narratives. They have lost these grand stories to fit our micro-stories in. Uh, Robert Weber, in his book, Who Gets to Narrate the World, says we now live in a world that has no unified narrative. 
And then one, one kind of a philosopher says, postmodernism is this doubt of meta-narratives. And so there's nothing in which to frame our lives. There's nothing in which to frame motherhood. And so mothers are left to try to figure out life on their own, trying to figure out both the pain and the promise of even motherhood. And so what I want to do is I want to frame the story of motherhood within the redemptive story of God this morning. And so my aim is to bring understanding. My aim is to bring hope. My aim is for us to live in this tension in a world that is broken, but in a world that we have the glimmer of the hope of resurrection. And that's what, that's what my aim is. So you're going to, here's what I would hope that will happen this morning. There's going to be times where you laugh and there's going to be times you want to cry. And those are good emotions in our world because those are the reality in the world in which we live. And so here's the main point. If you're ready for the main point, say you're ready. In Eve, there's pain. In God, there's promise. In Eve, there's pain. But in God, there's promise. And so we see this in Genesis 3, verses 15 and 16. So let's read those verses. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and hers. And he will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. To the woman, he said, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor, you will give birth to children. Let's pray. Father, may we sit in this tension this morning. And may you speak to our hearts and provide comfort and rest. May we experience a myriad of emotions because we live in a fallen world, but we also live in a world that has hope of redemption because of the death and resurrection of Jesus. And we pray this in your name. Amen. There's a shift that has happened here in Genesis 3 from Genesis 1. Genesis 1, 28, God had blessed Adam and Eve and said, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, and have dominion. So there's this blessing at the very beginning that God is bestowing on the first man and the first woman. And, and then in Genesis 2, we see a little bit more detailed picture where Adam has been created and God looks on Adam and says, it's not good for Adam to be alone. And let me just say it this way, and I'll make sure that I always tell women or men this, is that you don't need the other to complete you. See, Adam didn't know that he needed anyone else. Why? Because he was fully satisfied in the beloved. He didn't know that he needed a helpmate. He was fully satisfied in his relationship with God. But God's like, you know what? I've, I, I have this plan for you humanity to multiply worshipers to fill the earth so that they might reflect my glory in all spheres of life throughout the entire world and so I need to create a helpmate for Adam so he causes this deep sleep on Adam he performs the first surgery takes a rib from Adam fashions Eve wakes Adam up and now brings 
Adam this incredible gift called, whoa, man. And so in there, he breaks out into a song, whoa, man, bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. I mean, so he's having a celebration because of what God has now brought him. And so now the two become one and they start fulfilling the creation mandate of Genesis 1, 28. Everything's beautiful. Everything's harmonious there in the garden. They're enjoying perfect relationship with one another, perfect relationship with God. God had put them in this garden, said you can have free reign in this garden. You can eat from any tree that you want except this one tree. Now, why did he do that? Because God wanted Adam and Eve to know that he was Lord of the garden, that he was sovereign over the garden, that he has entrusted them to fulfill what he had put them there to do under his lordship. Well, Adam and Eve, they sinned. And now there's this brokenness that has entered into the world and there are consequences. But in these consequences, like pains in childbearing, there is this great hope because in verse 15, God says, I will crush the head of the serpent. What is that in reference to? Well, scholars would say that this is in reference to the first gospel where God promises redemption, God promises restoration, that now sin has entered the world and now they have flipped God's world upside down. What God is promising in Genesis 15, 315, is that he's going to redeem now broken humanity. He's going to redeem the world. But he's going to do so as they encounter pain. A couple authors have have said this about Genesis 3.16. There is no doubt that the term pain refers to physical pain. Its root lies in a verb that means to injure, cause pain or grief. Whether the pain would lie in the agony of childbirth or in the related grief that accompanies raising that child cannot be finally determined. The text would seem to allow for both ideas. So what one, what one scholar uh, that I was reading was saying is that it's not just the childbirth process that's painful. It's the motherhood. It's the parenthood process of raising children. And so what I want to do is I'm going to go through a list of 10 moms in the unfolding narrative of God. And we're going to learn about in Eve there's pain, in God there's promise. Well, we come to the first mother, Eve. Well, it only stands to reason we would come to Eve. We, we start with her, but I want, to, I want to share the pain and the promise of Eve. Now, so she has just heard the hope, but also the pain that is coming. But if you read the story of Eve, you actually see even more pain that she endures. Because in Genesis 4, we see the story of Cain and Abel. And Cain does what to Abel? Kills him. And could you imagine being Eve? And, and, and your sibling and your children cannot even get along and one hates the other so much that he takes it upon himself to kill him. Now, as, as Eve, now let's just think about it. She's probably sitting there going, if I wouldn't have eaten the fruit. Like it's my fault my children have ended up like this. I mean, so there's this intense pain that Eve is going through, right? And then Cain, he, he, he's, he, he has to flee. So he flees. 
So she has lost now two of her children. And she has to sit in that. But then, as we read at the very end of Genesis 4, she has a third child named Seth. And it's in him and through him. Here's what the Bible says. People began to call on the name of the Lord. And what she sees in Seth is this gift, this grace of God. So the mother of all living, pain and promise. Well, the story unfolds and we get to Genesis 16 through uh, 21 and we're introduced to Sarah and Hagar. Now, uh, Sarah, she's getting old in age and she's barren. She has not had any children, but here's the hiccup. The hiccup is that God has told Sarah's husband, Abraham, that through him he's going to... He, he, he's going to create a great name through Abraham and that there's going to be a multitude of people that they will become a great nation and that through Abraham and his descendants they're going to bless all of the families of the earth and so Sarah's like okay well how's that going to happen now because I'm 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 getting older not getting any younger not a spring chicken anymore and so I, I need a child if this is going to happen if your promise is going to come true I need a child Well, so Sarah actually takes matters into her own hands because culturally it was acceptable to do what she did. And here's what she did. Uh, She's like, Hagar is my servant. Here's what I'll do. I'll, I'll let her go in with Abraham and Abraham can have a child with Hagar and then we can carry on the family name that way. It was culturally acceptable to do that. Well, so now Sarah is kind of manipulating things to to get kind of in some sense to make good on God's promise. Well, Hagar goes in with Abraham and she immediately gets pregnant. Now, could you imagine for all of your adult life, you've been longing for a child. You have this promise that your your family is going to live on forever, blessing uh, the nations. And so you send your servant in there, and she gets pregnant just like that. It's like Abraham looks at her, and boom, she gets pregnant. Now, could you imagine the emotional turmoil of Sarah? Which is exactly what happens because now she doesn't like Hagar. She's actually mad at Hagar. She's livid at Hagar and treats her poorly and badly. You know what she does with Hagar? She drives her out of the family. Now, uh, what's so interesting is, <laughs> is that Abraham goes along with it. You know, he, uh, he's just this passive bystander, and here's what he says. Well, babe, just do whatever you want to. Spoken like a true man. Do whatever makes you feel happy, baby. You know, because a happy wife is a happy life. So if you want to drive her away, drive her away. And that's exactly what she does. Well, so Hagar is driven off in pain. Now she is... A woman who is pregnant who is now all alone. And I'm sure that I'm talking to many women online, maybe even here. Maybe you feel isolated. Maybe you feel lonely. Maybe you have this child that the man that, uh, that, who's the baby daddy has promised you to, to, to always be there, but he's not there anymore. Well, Abraham's not there. She's driven off. Well, while she is in this kind of a desolate stage of life, an angel of the Lord meets her and says, You are now pregnant, and you will give birth to a son. You shall name him Ishmael, for the Lord has heard your misery. And here's what Hagar names the Lord that day. 
You are the God who sees me. I don't know if you're a mom and you don't feel like you are seen. You don't feel like you're heard. God sees you. God hears you. Could you imagine? Could you imagine being Hagar? You are a servant slave. Now you're driven away. And you have this child in you. And you don't even know how you're going to take care of him. But God sees her. God hears her. Well, meanwhile, back at Abraham's house, Sarah, she's still barren. And so some, so some visitors come by kind of unbeknownst, and they're hanging out there with Abraham. And Abraham's like, wait here, and I'll make Sarah. I'll, I'll get, not make, but I'll get Sarah to put some chicken and dumplings on, you know. So I'll, I'll get her to pre- prepare some food. And so, so Sarah, she's, chicken, she's preparing some chicken and dumplings. Like, uh, Sarah made a mean chicken and dumpling. How do you know that, Josh? I don't know. I'm just making that up. But she is preparing food while Abraham is entertaining these three strangers. And one of the strangers uh, says to Abraham, hey, where's Sarah? Sarah, well, uh, Sarah's back in the back. She's sleeping over the hot stove, making you some chicken and dumplings. And, and so the stranger says to Abraham, well, by this time next year, Sarah will have a baby boy. And now Sarah overhears this because she's in the kitchen. She overhears it. She almost spills the chicken and dumplings because she's laughing really hard like, ha, how in the world am I going to have a child? I'm past, eight, I'm, I'm past childbearing age. Like I'm over 80 years of age. So, so she's laughing. She's, she's having a conniption in the chi- you know, while she's making the chicken and dumplings. But the, the visitor proved to be prophetic because a year later, guess what she had? A baby boy. Do you know what she named the baby boy? Isaac. You know what Isaac means? He laughs. So every, every time Sarah says, Isaac, come here, baby. Isaac, where are you? And she's always remembering that moment in the kitchen where she laughed. Because here's the thing that I want mothers to understand. Is that in God, there are laughable promises that are actually things that were impossible to you, but were possible to God. And so maybe at motherhood, maybe you're going through a time in your life where you're like, I just don't see how God will come through. I don't see how God will make a way. I'm at the end of my ropes. But here's what I want you to know is that God is the God of laughable promises. See, in Eve there's pain. In God there's promise. Well, the story unfolds and we get to Rebecca. Uh, Rebecca is Isaac's wife. And so here's the thing about Isaac and Rebecca. They're not really good parents, okay? And one of the things that if you study the book of Genesis, what you will learn is that God's family is one jacked up dysfunctional family. I mean, I'm telling you. One, and it should give us hope today because I know that I'm talking to a bunch of dysfunctional, jacked-up families of which the Laxton family and the Madonna family are two of them, okay? But there, there was. I mean, they, they had some issues. You know what issue that they had is that they played favorites. So Isaac had a favorite, and his favorite was Esau because Esau was a manly man. They watched Duck Dynasty together. Uh, they went to baseball games uh, together. They went hunting together. I mean, they 
they just enjoyed life together. Well, Rebecca, on the other hand, her favorite was Jacob. Jacob was mama's boy. Uh, he dressed nice. Uh, he, uh, he went with for Manny and Petty's with his mom. He'd sit there and watch Pride and Prejudice with his mom. I mean, like, Rebecca loved Jacob. So they, they played favorites. Well, here's the thing. They were twins, but Esau was born first. So therefore, he, he was going to be the firstborn. He was going to get everything from the family. Well, Rebecca didn't want that because she loved Jacob. She wanted Jacob to have everything. Well, so I don't have time to dive into the entire story, but uh, there was one situation where Jacob actually deceives Esau or manipulates him because he's really hungry one day, and Jacob just tells Esau, hey, buddy, hey, I'll give you the stew that I just made if you give me your birthright. And so undoubtedly, he was really hangry that day. He's like, all right, whatever, just give me something to eat. So Jacob gives him the stew, and Esau gives him the blessing of their firstborn. Well, you fast forward some more, and Isaac doesn't know this really happened and so he tells Esau one day hey buddy I mean I I really I really love I I really love that venison that you make so can you go out kill us a deer make a meal and I will give you the blessing of the firstborn because I'm getting up in age and I'm about to die so I want to go ahead and bestow the blessing of the firstborn on you well so Esau he's out hunting He's setting up all of the deer feed and all that, make sure that he kills him a nice deer for his daddy. Well, uh, Rebecca, on the other hand, she's overheard Isaac tell Esau this and says to Jacob, hey, Jacob, this is our time. Let's conspire. You go. Here's the thing. I, I got something already set up. You go ahead and start fixing the meal. And then we'll bring it to your dad and he'll, he'll, because he couldn't see really well and they didn't have, they didn't have like eyeglasses back then. And so uh, Jacob said, well, how's this going to happen? Because Esau's really hairy. I, you know, I shaved my legs, you shaved my arms, mom. <laughs> well, how's this going to happen? And she's like, don't worry about it. I'll take care of it. And she gets some goat hair, put some goat hair on him and all that so that they can deceive Isaac. Well, he fixes the meal, comes in with all of his goat hair and everything. And Isaac blesses Jacob. As the firstborn child. So he's going to get everything. Well, Esau comes back from the field and he finds out what happened. And he's like, oh, no, he didn't. So Esau is about to go all duck dynasty on Jacob. Uh, Yeah, and and so now Jacob has to flee because Esau is going to kill him. Now Rebekah has lost her favorite. And then to even get back at Rebecca, guess what Esau does? He goes out and marries a Canaanite woman. And Rebecca doesn't like Canaanite women. They're pagan. They're not part of, they're not part of the promise. So now she has lost both her children. Because she's trying to manipulate things. Well, where's the promise in that, Josh? God still works through Rebecca's manipulation to bring the promises of God through the line of Jacob. They're still going to use Jacob. And Eve, there's pain. And God, there's promise. Well, then we fast forward some more. Now we get to Jacob and his wife, Leah. This is his first wife. And it's, I'm telling you, I would, if you've never read Genesis 29 and you never read the story of Jacob... I, it is a very fast, it's one of the most fascinating stories of all of scripture. Because Jacob, he flees to cousin Laban's house because his brother wants to kill him. So while he's there at Laban's house, he, he meets Rachel. And Rachel is the woman of his dreams. Rachel is knockout gorgeous. He's like, I want to marry her. 
And so he, he kind of creates this contract with, with Laban and says, hey, I'll work seven years for Rachel if you'll, if you'll give me Rachel, Rachel's hand in marriage. And Laban says, seven years? Perfect. Let's do it. So for seven years, Jacob is working to pay off Rachel. And so they're, uh, the, the seven years is up, and now they're going to have this big wedding. And so, uh, so you have, you have uh, Jacob and Rachel, their wedding day. And here's what's the strangest thing that happens. He thinks he goes to bed with Rachel, but undoubtedly he doesn't because he wakes up next to Rachel's sister Leah. That is one jacked up honeymoon. Like, how, how, do you, how do you go to bed? Like, I just don't, I can't even fathom. That's why it's one of the strangest stories ever in Scripture. It's like, bro, you really had to drink a lot for your, you know, for, during your wedding party to, to even go to bed with what you thought was your wife, but you woke up. And so what had happened is Laban had, undoubtedly, he probably did get, he probably got Jacob flat drunk, didn't know what he was doing, sent Leah in there because she was the oldest, no sense of getting the youngest married before the oldest, so sends the oldest, oldest one in there, and then when Jacob wakes up the next day, he's like, whoa, 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 what just happened? And he wakes up next to Leah, so he's ticked off, he's mad. And so he creates another contract with Laban, he's like, all right, listen, I want Rachel, I, I don't want Leah, I, I, sure, I'll, I'll keep her, but that's not who I want, I want Rachel. So they create another seven-year plan, but at least this time he gets to marry Rachel and then gets to work for the next seven years, uh, he gets to work uh, the, the, uh, Rachel off, I guess. And this just sounds bad, that's just how they did it back then, it was this dowry, and so here's what happens though, Leah is now neglected by her husband, she's in this relationship where she is not loved. Well, and so here's what the Bible says. Here, here's what the Bible says. When the Lord saw that Leah was not loved, he enabled her to conceive, but Rachel remained childless. All right, so here's, here's, here's the picture we got. We got Leah not loved, but God is kind of bestowing blessing and love on her, allowing her to have all of these children. Rachel, on the other hand, she's barren, but she's loved by her husband. And so now you've got two women in pain. Why two women in pain? Well, Leah is having children thinking that Jacob will love her. And so she's trying to find her identity in her children so that her identity can be found in the love of her husband. Well, she has uh, kid number one, Reuben. Jacob didn't love her. Uh, kid number two, Simeon. Jacob didn't love her. Kid number three, Levi. Jacob still didn't love her. It wasn't until the fourth child uh, that Leah now comes to this realization that she doesn't need to find her identity in her children or in her husband. Her identity needs to come from the Lord. So she names the fourth child Judah, and here's what Judah means. This time I will praise the Lord. You see, we see in Leah pain because she's trying to find her identity in her children in her family, but she's not getting the love reciprocated. Jacob's not showing her love. The kids aren't doing what, what she wants them to do. But it wasn't until the fourth child where she's like, you know what, I'm just going to rest in the Lord. Listen, Mom, I, 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 here's what I do know in our culture. Our culture puts a lot of stock in, our, in, in finding their identity in their children and in their husband and their spouse. And here's what you need to realize is that your full-on-out satisfaction in life, your full-on-out identity in life will not come from your husband, will not come from your children. It will come from the Lord. In Eve, there's pain. In God, there's what? Promise. Well, then the story unfolds. We get to Jochebed. 
And so uh, Jochebed, we see her story in Exodus 2. Now the children of Israel, they have multiplied greatly, and they are there in the land of Egypt. Well, there is a Pharaoh that comes on the scene and that he doesn't remember Joseph. He doesn't remember uh, the, you know, kind of the Israelites and what they had done and the blessing that they are. All he can see is the sheer number of Israelites. And he's like, man, if they ever wise up and they want to kind of partner with another nation, they will overthrow us. So here's what we need to start doing. We need to start showing a heavy hand. And part of the heavy hand is that we're going to kill all of the male children and by throwing them into the Nile River. So all all male babies that are born, throw them into the Nile. Well, in Exodus 2, we see this woman... Uh, she's pregnant. Now, they, they, they didn't have uh, these machines that showed the sex of the child, so they had to wait until the baby was born. So, uh, so Jochebed doesn't know if it's a male or a female. And so upon delivery, she sees that it's a beautiful baby boy. But she also knows the law of the land. The law of the land, this beautiful baby boy is going to be drowned into the Nile River. And so what she does is she devises a faith plan and says, you know what, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to do as much as I can until we can no longer hide him and when we hide him here's what i'm going to do i'm going to i'm going to get a basket and i'm going to make sure that this basket can float and i'm going to put this basket in the nile river that's my adoption plan can you imagine if that's your adoption plan that your adoption plan is a basket that doesn't sink in the nile river filled with crocodiles it's like a jungle book story and so that's exactly what she does So she gives up her baby to the sovereignty and mercy of God. And could you imagine, I mean, I I, I can't even fathom being Jochebed. I want you to picture yourself walking down to the Nile River with your baby boy in this basket, putting, putting him in the Nile River, and then slowly making your way back, slowly retreating, and there just going, Lord, I can't protect my baby. There, there's nothing that I can do. So he is in your hands. And then lo and behold, Pharaoh's daughter comes down to the Nile River, hears this crying, sends her little servant girl, finds this basket with this baby. Now again, Pharaoh's daughter, she looks at the baby as a Hebrew. You would think Pharaoh's daughter would be like, well, we got to put an end, we got to put an end to this baby's life. Let's just go ahead and turn the basket over. But she doesn't do it. God moves on her heart to care for this baby and then sends sends for a, a nurse to nurse her, which happens to be her mom or his mom. And she gets to nurse Moses. Pain promise and Moses he rises up and becomes the deliverer of the Israelites and leads them to the promised land and it's going to be in the promised land where God's going to be God's going to look at them as his treasured possession as his kingdom of priests as his holy nation and then you fast forward they're in the promised land but they haven't driven out all of the inhabitants left and 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 By not doing that, here's what happens is that the inhabitants of the land become a hindrance to the Israelites. Uh, They they, 
uh, one of the things that the, that the inhabitants do, that the, they lead the Israelites astray by worshiping other gods, by being syncretistic. And what would happen is that when, when they would start being unfaithful to the Lord, he, here's what God would do. He would, send, he would send these inhabitants to oppress them. Well, then he would, he would raise up judges uh, to, to free the Israelites, uh, to bring them back to the Lord. And so we look at the wife of Manoah in Judges 13, 16. And she, she is the mother of Samson. And I don't have time to dive into her story. But she was barren. But God's like, I'm going to, pro- I'm going to give you a promise. I'm going to give you a child. And he, he's going to be a Nazarite. Which basically means like he's going to have this set of rules that really apply to him and no one else. That he can't touch dead animals. He, can, he cannot drink wine. You cannot cut his hair. But he's going to be the strongest judge that ever, that ever lived. And so Samson was. He, he was the strongest. He was the strongest avenger of Israel. He was the Captain America of Israel. Well, he had a problem. And what was his problem? Well, he loved pagan women. He loved Philistine women. And, and, and at one point, his mom and father just replied, Isn't there any acceptable woman among your relatives or among your own people? Like, I don't know if you've ever been a mom in that situation where you're like, man, why, why can't I, you know, why, why can't my daughter just find a nice Christian boy? Well, why, why can't my boy just find a nice Christian girl? And, and maybe you're older and your, your child is, is grown and married and you don't even really like the woman or the man that they married because they, they don't love Jesus. Well, that was Samson. Well, long story short, Uh, Samson ends up getting tricked by Delilah. She finds out where he gets his strength from, calls the Philistines in, they cut his hair, and therefore he has no more strength left. And now he is a slave in the land of the Philistines. Could you imagine his mom and the pain? Man, I I raised him right. Man, he, he had so much promise. And he was doing so good. This one thing, and I kept on warning him about it time after time again. And so while there in slavery, there in the land of the Philistines, here's what Samson does. He prays one last time, God, will you give me strength one last time? And God gives him strength one last time. He tears down the pillars, and the temple comes crashing down, and he killed more Philistines in that one moment than he did in his entire life, and his mom and dad go to get his body. Now, that's pain, but as they get his body in the midst of that rubble, they see promise that God is not only the God of Israel, but he is the God over the Philistines. And then we continue to unfold the story, and we get to Naomi. Naomi... Uh, she was married to Elimelech and they left the land of Israel and they went to a foreign land because a famine had hit the land. While in the land of Moab, not only did she lose her husband, but she lost two of her sons. And she tells, she tells her daughter-in-laws, Oprah, you know, I always want to say Oprah, but it's Orprah and Ruth, hey, why don't you just go back to your family and you guys just start all over. And I'm just going to, I'm going to head back to my homeland. Well, Orpah, she goes back to her home. But Ruth says, no, Naomi, I'm going to stay with you. Your God will become my God. Your people will become my people. It's an extremely moving story. 
Well, so, so now they return to Judah. And here's what, Ru, here's what Naomi says when she returns home. Do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full and the Lord has brought me back empty. You feel like that kind of mom? You remember the good old days when it was full. But now it's empty. Maybe you lost a child. Maybe you are an empty nester. And your child or children never call you. Never visit you. You feel empty. Well, as they're in the homeland, she and Ruth, they they really start building their relationship. And Naomi tells Ruth, you've got to find a kinsman redeemer. You've got to find someone that takes on the family name. Well, they find Boaz. And Boaz is a, a kinsman redeemer who can carry on the family name. And it's going to be through Boaz that God does something just incredible to Naomi. One night, Ruth is there with Boaz, and they're talking about being the, you know, about Boaz being the kinsman redeemer. And so he's like, there is one other person that's closer um, in kin, and if he doesn't take you to be uh, his wife, then I will. And he's going to send Ruth back, but this is so beautiful. Here's what, he, here's what the Bible says when he sends Ruth back to Naomi. Don't go back to your mother-in-law empty-handed. Loads her up with food. And she gets there, and Naomi sees all of this food. And then at the end of the book of Ruth, the women of the land said this to Naomi. Praise be to the Lord who this day has not left you without a guardian or a kinsman redeemer. May he become famous throughout Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you and who is better to you than seven sons has given him birth. So Boaz and Ruth will have a child named Obed. Obed will give birth to a child named Jesse. And Jesse will eventually give birth to a child named David. And David will be the king of Israel. Naomi and Eve, there's pain. In God, there's promise. I have one other, but I, want, I have actually a couple more, but I want to fast forward all the way to Mary. You can go back and read Hannah and the story of Bathsheba, but let me fast forward to Mary. Mary is this poor teenage girl from Nazareth. She's envisioned that she's really envisioned just a normal, quiet life there in Nazareth that she would marry a, a nice young man and that they would kind of basically grow up in obscurity there in Nazareth. But you know the story, right? The angel Gabriel comes to Mary and says, hey, oh, favored one, you teenager, you're a favored teenager. The Lord is with you and you shall give birth to a son and you shall call him Jesus. And Mary's like, what in the world? One, I'm a virgin. How's that going to happen? And two, like the son of God, uh, you know, the son of David, like really? I mean, think about it. Uh, You know, God has just wrecked this teenager's life. Because not everybody's going to believe that she was a virgin. Not not, even Joseph early on did not believe that. He's thinking, "What, what have you done, Mary? Who have you been with? And then the angel comes to Joseph and says, hey, you need to take Mary as your wife. She's telling the truth. And Joseph's like, all right, all right. And so they get married, 
Well, they have Jesus, they get married, and it is definitely a unique situation, right? Because not everybody, not, not everybody is going to believe Mary and Joseph. Well, you fast forward to the, the kind of the end of, of Jesus' earthly life. I want you to imagine that you are Mary. You have seen your son turn water into wine. You have heard the stories of him multiplying the bread and the fishes. You have heard of the stories of him healing the lame and healing the blind and raising the dead. So you know, you really believe that your son is special, that your son is the son of God, is God incarnate. But now you are seeing this whole different picture because you have heard your son talk about that he had to die. And but now you are experiencing it. They have arrested, they have arrested Jesus. They have beat Jesus. And now he hangs on a cross. And you are Mary, and you are looking at the agony of your son, the son that you gave birth to on the cross. You are seeing those who oppressed him. You are seeing those who afflicted him. You are seeing and hearing the insults hurled at him. Pain. One of the interesting scenes on the cross comes in John 19. And the Bible says this, When Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to her, Woman, Here is your son and the disciple, here is your mother. From that time on, the disciple took her into his home. What what a moving scene. While Jesus is on the cross in intense agony, he takes enough time to look at his mom and says, Mom, here's your son. Son, hey, John, 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 this is your mom. Then eventually he would breathe his last. A few days later, Mary would hear the rumors that her son is alive. And and she would eventually see her resurrected son, the resurrected king, Jesus. See, in Eve there's pain. In God there's promise. And here's what I want us to know, mothers, church. We live in the tension of Friday and Sunday. In motherhood, there will be Fridays. You will have extreme pain, agony, and you will think to yourself, I I just can't even, I I can't even, I can't breathe. I, I, I can't even go on. It's just too painful. You will live in the Fridays. But what Mary experienced was Sunday. And with all of those women throughout Scripture, they experienced the tension of the Friday and the Sunday, the pain and the promise. And moms, church, that's where I want us to live. That's where I want us to press into is the pain and the promise. Let's pray. Jesus, it is definitely a No, it's just a difficult day. Even those who are celebrating being a mom, I'm sure they're going through some kind of Friday with their child. 
So will you give them glimmers of Sunday? Will you breathe hope? Will you breathe restoration? Will you breathe redemption? Will you breathe reconciliation? Father, will you breathe life? Father, for those women who they are just so longing to be a mom. Father, I pray that you will breathe a miracle. Will you envelop their heart with comfort and peace that only the God of Sunday can give? Father, may the church, may the mothers who love you, may they be salt and light in a world that is in desperate need of a meta-narrative that speaks promise in the midst of pain. And that's what we pray. That's what we press into. For it's in your name we pray, our King. Amen.